We're going to discuss tonight a series of chuvos and other halachic sources on <coughs> several customs related to Hanukkah, including the custom of giving Hanukkah gelt or gifts on Hanukkah. The truth is that there is very little halachic literature at all on the topic of Hanukkah gelt and Hanukkah gifts. And what there is is not really in the response to literature per se, but there are a couple of chuvas on the topic, chuvas and informal questions and answers which we, which we can uh, study, uh, enough at least to fit it into our reading responses series, and it's a topic that everyone's always curious about, and it's uh, certainly Dover Beto, so that's what we will do tonight. So one of the earliest sources for the custom of Hanukkah gelt is, appears in a somewhat obscure sefer, at least today, called Hanukkah Sabayas. I guess we all have a tendency to call Sfarim obscure if we never heard of him, if we never heard of them. For all I know, this was a wildly popular shefer in its time. But the Sefer Hanukkah Sabayas was written by a Rabbi Shol ben David. It was published in the year Shinai and Vav, Hey Shinai and Vav, which is early, early uh, 17th century, 1616 or so. Uh, the Sefer was quoted by the Magen Avram in this case, which is how people have, which is why people know what he says. Anyway, this is a small Sefer. It was published on Inyane Hanukkah. It's uh, a large part of it is a commentary on the lengthy commentary on the little paragraph of Haneris Halalu. It's full of. I didn't read it extensively. It's full of gematria and kabbalistic allusion and types of midrash. In the course of his discussion, he has this elaborate connection between Shemen which uh, related to the name of Hashem, and related to the Hanukkah, and it's also related in the, the rules of various gematria-type rules to the, the phrase sowed tzedakah, the secret of charity, and tzedakah has to be bestowed, and that's why it's this gematria. And on Hanukkah, he says, you're supposed to give tzedakah, particularly to Na'arim Lom De Torah, to young people who study Torah. And these young people, he says, they, they're chodron al-apsachim, they go from door to door. It's, uh, it sounds almost like Purim, or like a certain holiday that the non-Jews have, but uh, Havdil. But uh, these young people, they go door to door. The Hanukkah Mizamrim, they, they sing and they celebrate Hanukkah. And the, the nace of, of Hanukkah happened with Pach Katan, a small jar of oil. The Pach and Katan are, ref, are, are, are an allusion to children. And they go around from door to door, Lefarsim HaNace, to, uh, to publicize the nace of Hanukkah. So again, in this very, uh, in this very um, elusive and somewhat esoteric passage, he refers to some kind of custom that young men would go from door to door, and particularly young yeshiva students, they would go from door to door, and people would give them money. Uh, there's a mitzvah to give tzedakah in general on Hanukkah, particularly to these young people, these young Torah scholars, these young yeshiva students who would go from door, door, who would go from door to door, and that is, that's this minog that, again, it's being recorded, being recorded from the early 17th century, uh, nearly 400 years ago already. We have some kind of minog involving young people and money on Hanukkah. The Magen Avram, one of the pillars of modern halacha, one of the most important of the Nosi Kelem on Shulchan Aruch, the Magen Avram writes, very briefly, he brings this custom down as well. No, one line, the Magen Avram is famous for his, his terseness, his brevity, he writes, The custom is for young, poor people to go from door to door on Hanukkah. If you look in the Sefer, 
Kasaf Tavlazet. He brings a reason. The reason is full of these gematria and Kabbalistic allusions, but that, that's the reason for this minhag. It's noteworthy that the, that the Magen Avram, when he brings this custom, he says, Noagim Hanarim Ha'anim. The young, the young people the, who are poor. In the word, in the Sefer Chanukah Zabayis, as far as I noticed, the word paupers is not mentioned specifically. He, he is talking about tzedakah, and he does say that you're supposed to give tzedakah to these various people, including the Na'arim who learn Torah. He doesn't explicitly say the Na'arim were poor, but I guess in context he's talking about tzedakah, and he's talking about the sod of tzedakah. It's supposed to be some high, and since the context is tzedakah, it stands to reason that the young people in question were poor. That's certainly how the Magen Avram understood it. He says the Mirag was for the poor young people to go from door to door. And this is important because later postkim, contemporary postkim, who discuss the, the, the murky origins, the obscure origins for the Minag of Hanukkah Gelt, they point out that this Magen Avram and, and his predecessor, the Hanukkah Sabayis, are the earliest sources that really discuss this, but they're talking about tzedakah. They're talking about poor young men and tzedakah. They're not really talking about a general custom to give upper-middle-class children tzedakah. Uh, Gelt, they're talking about a custom that was a form of tzedakah to give poor, pe- poor young people, especially Torah students, to give them some money. Okay, but this is one of the very earliest sources we have for any sort of custom related to Hanukkah Gelt. Jump ahead now a few hundred years to, the, to a contemporary tshuva in the Tshuvas Avne Yashve. Tshuvas Avne Yashve by Rabbi Feinhandler, Rabbi Pesach, Rabbi Pesach Feinhandler. His name was... His name was Yisrael Pesach Feinhandler, a, a, a contemporary work published, uh, th- this volume was published in Tufshin Memtes, that would be 89, so a, uh, so a, so, so a, a relatively contemporary work, published uh, several decades ago. So he, he discusses the question of Hanukkah Gelt. He has a, one, of the actual, one of the very few, virtually the only published formal tshuva I've read on the topic of Hanukkah Gelt. He has a tshuva in his sefer in Chelek Aleph discussing two menhagim of Hanukkah. The first one we'll turn to a little bit later, but the second part of his tshuva deals with Hanukkah Gelt. He says, this minhag of Nesinast me Hanukkah li'iladim, giving Hanukkah Gelt to children. He writes, Bachar echad ratza litern. A certain young man argued that the minhag to give Gelt to children, to give Kesef li'iladim b'Hanukkah, is a minhag hagayim. It's a problematic custom because it is a custom of the non-Jews. Obviously, they too give presents on their holidays which fall at this time of the year. Obviously, this is a reference to Christmas. They give presents to, their, to, their, to the little children, big children. They give presents in general. So the custom, this is a common critique of the custom of Hanukkah Gelt, that what we're doing seems to be uh, a, a borrowed custom from the non-Jews, and not just a neutral custom, a religious custom, a holiday custom of the Christmas is about as Christian a holiday as you can get. Maybe not Christmas in its current American commercial interpretation, but certainly Christmas in its original form was a, it may have been a pagan holiday before that, but you know, for a large portion of history, it was a religious holiday, and uh, giving presents is a Christian custom, and therefore this person raised the issue that this sounds like a non-Jewish custom. Says Rabbi Feinhandler, This young man who raised the point that it seems to be a Christian custom, what was his point? His point was that there's a halachic problem here. 
There's a famous prohibition we've discussed many times in the past. Torah prohibits multiple times. You're not allowed to adopt customs of non-Jews. You can't walk in the ordinances of non-Jews. And therefore, if this is really a non-Jewish custom, maybe it should be prohibited for Jews to practice this custom. Says Rabbi Feinhandler, it is not a problem. Now, he, unlike some other Chachamim, he actually agrees to the historical reality that the custom we have is, is basically, uh, is basically uh, a, a, a non-Jewish custom. He says, however, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, he says. It doesn't really matter. He says, a very, very famous Tshuva the Marik, we've discussed in the past, the Marek has a seminal tshuva on the topic of Chukas HaGayim. He explains that it only applies what's Asr. Is it Asr to use a fork? Is it Asr to wear pants? Is it Asr to drive a car? Is it Asr to play basketball, to eat sushi? What's Asr? What, much of what we do is, 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 is some form of non-Jewish culture, culture broadly defined. So what's Asr? What's called Chukas So the Marek has a seminal tshuva on this question. Marek was asked about the wearing of a, of special, a special garb that physicians used to wear. They, they designated a kind of uniform that physicians wore to advertise, to, 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 you know, to publicize and advertise their, their, their uh, expertise, their, their training and certification. So you allowed to wear these special robes, the, fas- the special physician's robes. Marek said yes, and he explained that Chukas the prohibition of Chukas is limited to Dover Blitam, Something that has no reason, it's irrational, it's a superstition. Uvlito elas yidua, it has no known benefit, it has no rational explanation. The rational basis test, so to speak. Avoldavrish yeshlo tam something which has a reason, that has some benefit. Ein bomishum b'chukosem, and this is brought in the Ramah, in Yardesim, and Kufayin Chesif Aleph, where the, where the Shulchan Aruch briefly discusses chukosagayim, the prohibition of chukosagayim, the Ramah brings this marik, as well as other Rishonim would say similar things, that the prohibition is limited to something which has, which is uh, mysterious, which is which which has no rational basis. That we suspect of being pagan, or alternatively, or alternatively, the Marik says something which is something which is, uh, is 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 inherently an immoral and unJewish custom. It involves pretzus and immodesty and. Uh, or uh, a lack of uh, a lack of uh, refined behavior that uh, displays arrogance. Certain customs which are inherently problematic, or there's no reason, and therefore, and we and they smack of superstition and even idolatry. Those are the customs the Torah prohibits. But a, a rational, sensible custom that the non-Jews have, there is no prohibition in adopting for Jewish use. Im Kane says the Rabbi Feinhandler, Mashenosim mechanical liyaladim. Why do we give gelt? Why do we give uh, Hanukkah gelt to kids? Right to Allah's There's an obvious and straightforward reason. Makes them happy. Give them, you give them some money. It, 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 it's, it's part of the joy of Hanukkah. When the Rambam talks about Simchas Yantif, not Hanukkah, but Simcha of the, of the Shalash Regalim, so he, based on the Gemara, he says that the, the, the definition of Simcha, Judaism, we're, we're a religion where everything is a halacha, even the laws of Simcha. The Torah says, Samachta Bechagecha. Even that has laws. How do you rejoice on Yom Tov? There are rules. It's not just however you want. There are rules. The Gemara talks about it. The Rambam talks about it. How are you Muslimach on Yom Tov? The rules are not actually so rigid. The rules are that, you, that, that for different types of people, you do things that make them happy. 
uh, it says men, men like this, women, men like meat and wine, and women like clothing and new clothing, and kids like candy, kids like uh, treats. How do, you, how do you bring Simcha to the Katanim? You give them roasted wheat and nuts. Wouldn't fly too far today, but back then that was the equivalent of candy. Today you give uh, Zazas and Bumbos or whatever, whatever the things, the Dazzles and whatnot, the, the, the Dum Dums, all, all the different types of candies and treats that the kids eat. Brought in Shulchan Aruch. So that's the way the Katanim have Simcha. You give them treats. Gamba Chanukah says to my fine handler, Hen Yimei Simcha, Vahalel. Chanukah also, it's not a mitzvah deraisa, it doesn't have the mitzvah of Zemach Gecha, but it's also a day, there are also days <coughs> that the Chacham established as Yimei Simcha, Vahalel, days of rejoicing and praising God. And uh, therefore he says, Lachain, Shaper Nogim, Lachalakom, Kasef, Matanat, Kivan, Dalkal, Panam Yesh, Kan Yimei Simcha, Vakach Mesamach, Mesakitan. So there's, there's no iser in there's no iser in, in, in following the monogamy of the Gaim. Kivan he, he doesn't explicitly say that we got it from them, but he does acknowledge that this is a more or less equivalent of the of the non-Jewish custom. But it doesn't matter. Kivan sheyesh tamhagun since there is a good reason, a logical reason. We don't have to be concerned about the fact that the Gaim do something similar doesn't matter because it's a rational and sensible custom. That's the position of Rabbi Feinhandler. Now, it's not so simple. As we discussed in the past, although it's true that the Marik does say this, and the Ramad does pass in this way, so it would seem to be uh, pretty much an open and shut case. Anything that we do for a, ration, for a rational reason, on a, for, that has a rational basis, we shouldn't have to worry about Kuksa Gayim. And indeed, Rabbi Vadi Yosef and other poskim pask in this way in various contexts, that, that even if there are non-Jewish customs that we want to adopt, as long as they make sense and they're not uh, superstitious and irrational, they're fine. So Rav Adiyasei, for example, has, has tshuva dealing with flowers, on a, flowers on, a, on, on, a, on a grave or a coffin or wearing black mourning and hearses and various types of funerary practices of the non-Jews. And he says that even though they're non-Jewish customs, First of all, he says some of these customs do have sources in, in the Torah, wearing black, but even the ones, even if they don't, even things like the flowers and other things which don't really have a basis in Aramisari, he says, it doesn't matter, because the halacha follows the marik, and the ran, and the rivash, that any, that any custom that has a rational basis is not prohibited as chuchs putting flowers on the grave, is, or, the, or, the, or the coffin is just to show covered and to beautify the mace, and so on, and, and there, there are rational reasons for all these customs, and therefore, he says, there's no prohibition of chuks He says that you should tell people, especially in Eretz Yisrael, that as a Jew, we have, we have our, own, our own funerary customs. There's no need to borrow the Europeans or the, the non-Jews. We should be proud of our own Messiah, he says. But if they're not willing to hear it, if it's hard for them to hear it, he says, they're not ready to hear that. It's mutter because of the rational basis test. And this is something which is generally accepted by Poskin. Ad Kedekach, that the, there's, an old, there's an old minhag, which is actually, in some ways, the discussion is parallel to the Hanukkah Gelp, except that this discussion is much more heavily discussed by Postkum and goes back much earlier. There's an old minhag to put greenery in the shuls on Shavuos. Early, early Postkum, the Ramah already mentions that they used to put uh, grass and greenery, and late, later minhag in Magen Avram mentions trees. We do flowers today a lot. So Postkum give a number of reasons for why we do that. But famously, we've spoken about this in the past, famously, the Vilna Gon was opposed to it. 
there are different versions. Uh, it, it, it's not actually written in his, his own sefer, but uh, various, various poskim record that the Vilna Gon was opposed to the custom. Some say he was opposed to the trees. Some say he was opposed to uh, all greenery in the shuls. There are different versions of, of his opposition. And uh, the poskim say that his opposition was based on the fact that, 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 that this is the custom of the Christians in, in their holiday, in their non-Jewish holiday. I remember when, when I first saw that the Goans opposed maybe to trees because it was a Christian custom, I kind of assumed that he meant Christmas, Christmas trees. It's not actually what he meant. What he meant was Pentecost. Pentecost celebrated largely in the, this way in, in, the, in, Eastern, in the Eastern Orthodox versions of Christianity. In Pentecost, which falls around Shavuos, it's 50 days after Pesach, so it's around Shavuos time. It's 50 days after Easter, I think they celebrate it, but it's a holiday that's roughly around the same time as Shavuos. In Eastern Orthodox interpretations of Christianity, there was a custom that they would take flowers and greenery and put it inside the churches, maybe the homes also. That would be part of the, the, the folk observance of Pentecost. That's what the Vilna Gaon was referring to. And he was opposed to, and he was opposed, therefore, to the Jewish custom. He said, we can't do it, it's a Christian custom. And many Litvish poskim <coughs> were sympathetic or accepted this. The Chayadam, Baruch HaShulchan, or Moshe Feinstein, many poskim of the Litvish tradition said that the, that, that the, the Lithuanian tradition, in which, in which the Gon, of course, was a towering, overweening figure, rejects the custom of greenery in the shuls. However, however, the, the Minog Yisrael Torah, the Minog, of course, is that we still, we, we do have this custom, at least with regard to greenery and flowers, maybe not trees, but we do have the custom of putting greenery in shuls. And the truth is that some of the Gedole HaPoskim of the 19th century addressed the, the objection of Chuksa Gayim, and they rejected it. They said, it's not a problem. There are this Chuvas in the Sholem Eshev and others, Marsham, I think, where they, 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 they address this issue of Chuksa Gayim, and they say, it's not a problem. They say that it has, the Minog has a rational basis, the Minog gets to celebrate Yom Tov and Tavarius Ramazim of Yom Tov, and therefore it's not a problem. Rabbi Yosef Shol Nathanson, the author of the Sholem Eshev, has an incredible analysis of the custom, he says a, a remarkable, a truly remarkable discussion in his sefer on Yerodea. He says that in general the rule is anything that has a rational basis is not is not an issue of chuksagayim. So he says that he instructed his followers. He had people ask you know, senior church figures to please explain why do you do this? Why? Do, what is the meaning of the of the greenery in the church on Pentecost? Now it's interesting that the. When other posts can discuss the rational basis test, they look, they look at why we do it, not why the Christians do it. For example, Rabbi Feinhandler, when he discusses Hanukkah Gelt, what, what justifies the custom, he doesn't analyze why the Christians do it, he analyzes why we do it. He says, we do it because it's, uh, it's a Rambam and a Gemara, that, that, that it's part of celebrating Yontif, so the, that, that's what we care about. We don't have to figure out why the Goyim do it, that's not our problem, what we care about is why we do it. But the Sholem Eshev, he was interested to know why the Goyim did it. That apparently was important to his. Uh, in, it was it was uh, what, that that was apparently relevant to his analysis of whether it was chuksagayim or not. So we had people ask a, a senior Christian figure, "Please tell us why you put these things in the church," and they said, "There's no uh, particularly Christological explanation for this. It's just a form of celebrating the holiday. It's a way of making the church beautiful. It's the spring, I guess. They had flowers and greenery." It just is a general way of rejoicing to take growing things and put them in the church. So there's nothing uh, particularly Christian about it per se. So the Sholem Eshev said, if so, then it's fine. 
This is not a this is not an inherently Christian practice. It's just a way of celebrating the holiday. If they celebrate with good food or with uh, beautiful architecture, they have a nice church or you know, with, or you know fancy robes. That doesn't create an issue of Kuksagai. And the fact that they're harnessing these these human modes of celebration and honor, they're harnessing these modes to a religious purpose. That's not that's, that's, that doesn't make it Kuksagai. Like I said, if they, if they would have a nice suda to celebrate their holiday, uh, a festive meal, that doesn't mean a festive meal is Kuksagai. It's, it's a rational practice. That it's a natural and, and reasonable human human tendency to celebrate a holiday, to, to serve to serve God with uh, with festivities, with shemval food. And here too, he says, if it's if it's simply if there's nothing particularly Christian about these about this greenery, it's simply it's simply about celebrating the holiday. One might have suspected that maybe it has to do with the rejuvenation and the birth and the rebirth of Christ or something. Okay, but that's not what they told him. What they told him was it is not something of Christological significance. It's just a simple and straightforward way of celebrating the holiday. So we can do it too. We can do it as well on, on Shavuos. And that's, of course, why these types of arguments by the Gidolea Poskim 150 years ago these are obviously accepted by Claudius Yisrael, and the Goans' opposition notwithstanding, the custom has remained, uh, it's, it remains a beloved practice and widely practiced today in shuls and homes, and the Goans' position was not widely accepted outside the, the diehard uh, Lithuanian Masora. Now, the Goan himself, as, as, as I and others have noted, the Goan himself may have been Lishitase. The Goan himself did not agree with this Marek. As I said, the Gon's opposition to the flowers and the trees and Shavuos is, is not actually in his farm. He doesn't discuss it. We, we don't have his, his own words on the matter. But what we do have from the Gon is that, the, as Refine Handler mentions, this Marik is brought by the Ramad, that anything that passes the rational basis test is fine. On that Ramad, there's a very long uh, critique of the Bir Hagra, the, the Gra's notes to Shulchan Aruch, where he argues at length that, uh, based on Talmudic sources, this position is not correct. Even though the Marik holds this way, and other Rishonim hold this way, the Gon argues that this position is not correct, that Chukzah Goyim should be interpreted more broadly. Again, how broadly still remains a question. Professor Weiss points out, no one's going to say you can't use a fork because the Goyim use forks. No one's going to say you can't uh, wear trousers because the Goyim wear trousers. Obviously, things that are practical and useful and relevant are not Chukzah Goyim. So how far the Gon means to go is not so clear. But the sheet of the Gon in general, he takes a much stricter a much stricter view of Kuksagayim that even things which are not inherently religious or superstitious can still be usser. And quite likely that's what informed his opposition, his reported opposition to the trees and, and flowers and shavuos. And even if they're not, even if they're not necessarily a, a specifically religious observance, if it's, a, if it's a noted non-Jewish religious practice, you can't do it even if it has a, a rational basis. Now, Lahalacha, how do we pass? Can we mention that the minna clearly is that we the minute clearly is that we do have, uh, we, do, but we do put flowers in the shuls. And many, many poskim defended that. And the, many, the truth is, though, that there are poskim who do bring, out, who do bring up this gone in, in, when, when they object to, to Jews adopting certain non-Jewish practices. Despite the fact that the gone seems to be a, a das yachid, and Ravadi argues at length the halachas like the marik, and many poskim, like refined handler here, do bring up this marik as, as being the ikra din. There are some major poskim who do occasionally bring up the gon as a reason to avoid chuksagayim. No less eminent a figure and as you know, mainstream and sophisticated a thinker as Rav Asher Weiss does so. Rav Asher Weiss, uh, a, one of the great contemporary authorities, one of the most brilliant and creative and interesting thinkers in, uh, in Torah today, 
he has a tshuva on Chuk Sagayim, an essay on Chuk Sagayim, where he discusses all the different shitas and all these different ideas. And he says that at the end of the day, even though the, we have the Marik and we have the Ramah who says that anything that has the, passes the rational basis test is, uh, is mutter, even though he says that's the halacha, he still turns around at the end of his discussion and strongly recommends that we avoid certain practices which he thinks are chuksagayim, despite the fact that according to the Ramah they'd be mutter, because according to the Grah they'd be aser. For example, standing, for, standing during the sirens in Israel, the moment of silence, as a form of commemorating loss or death. Now again, according to the Ramah, that's fine. It might not be a Jewish custom, but it's a, it's a rational thing. It's a, it's a perfectly logical way to celebrate. It's not based on superstition or paganism. It's a logical way not to celebrate, to commemorate, uh, to engage in introspection. So it, 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 it certainly passes the rational basis test. Nevertheless, Ravasha says, since it violates, the, according to the Grah, it would still be usher, and therefore you should not do that. He has various other examples of, of similar practices. We shouldn't go around adopting minhagim of the Gayim. Again, he might just mean that it's uh, against the spirit of the halacha. He himself, a couple of paragraphs earlier in his discussion, he mentions that some of the Hungarians, some of the fanatical anti-reformers from the 19th century, went around saying things were austere because of Huxley Gayim, when that's clearly not correct, he says. They just meant as a kind of rhetorical device that in, in their fight against assimilation, we should avoid anything which smacks of assimilation. So, for example, he quotes the... The Maram Sheikh, who says that uh, someone who adopts a non-Jewish name violates the prohibition against Chukas Agayim, Alav Daraisa. Says the Russian, what are you talking about? Uh, the the Chachmei Gemara and the Mishnah had non-Jewish names. The Gemara tells us most Jews who lived in had non-Jewish names. Rishonim had non-Jewish names. Achronim had non-Jewish names. Since when, are you, uh, since when, how can you possibly say with a straight face that uh, having a non-Jewish name is Chukas Agayim? I, I still remember how amused I was to learn that the that the Rebbe of the, one of the Rebbeim of the Beneshchai, the leading Iraqi posik, who the author of the Zivchei Tzedek, his name was Abdullah, Rabbi Abdullah Somech. Abdullah. Jews use names like Abdullah. So there's, it means Ovadia, it means Ever Hashem. Abdullah, Gottiner in Yiddish, Abdullah in Arabic, Ebed Allah, Ebed of Allah. So, but but it's, it's clearly a non-Jewish name. It's a translation of Hebrew name, I guess, but it's a non-Jewish name. The point is that Jews have always had non-Jewish names, says Rav Asher. How can you say it's an Isra Daraisa? He says that the, 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 the Maram Sheikh meant in his time it was, uh, it was a marker of assimilation, so he just wanted to condemn it in, in as strong language as he could. He doesn't mean it was strictly speaking Chukzagayim. It's possible Rav Asher himself uh, is hinting that's what he's going to do also when he tells you that, that he doesn't approve of the, when he doesn't approve of the, of the of standing for the siren and so on. So it's possible, again, that he meant that, uh, that, that he just meant that, it, that, it, that there's no need for this kind of, uh, there's no need for this kind of adoption of non-Jewish practices, he says, he says that the, he, the other example he talks about the flowers on the on the kvarim, even though Ravadi said it was fine, he says it's uh, it's not roy, it, it, it's not the cover of the mace to, to be adorned in Menhagia Agayim, making different types of monuments, he says, monuments for the fallen, he says, that's not a Jewish custom, he says that, that he, bring, he brings the example of Yad Shalom, he says, but uh, we don't know that it was right. Not, not, everyone that everyone did, not everything that everyone in Nacht did was correct. Who said that was really correct, he said. Standing for the moment of silence, he said. These things are not Jewish things, he says. You should be choshish for the grah, and you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't do these things. Rav Betzal Zolti, also another leading Talmud Chacham from the previous generation in Eretz Yisrael, also says he talks about military funerals with gun salutes and, and floral wreaths and so on. He can't do that, he says. Uh, it's true, according to the Marek, according to the Ramad, it's okay. But uh, military funerals is chuksagayim, he says. According to the Grah, the Grah has his broader standard, his stricter standard. 
he shouldn't adopt non-Jewish customs even if they do pass the rational basis test, says Rav Asher, says Rav Zolti, you should be you should be choshesh for the gra. To use Rabbi Salazolti's words, you should avoid these customs. So I don't know if, according to them, he, they would argue you should avoid Hanukkah Gelt as well if you accept uh, Feinhandler's thesis that it basically is a non-Jewish custom and he's only justifying it because of the Marik. Would they tell you it's better to avoid that as well? I suspect not somehow. Again, it's difficult to know how far to take Chuxagayim, but this is Rabbi Feinhandler's position. As I said, he, this, he is the one and only tshuva, formal, actual tshuva, of which I'm aware discussing Hanukkah Gelt, he basically, as I said, he basically concedes that it is a non-Jewish custom, but it doesn't matter, he says, it passes the rational basis test, it's part of the Simcha of Hanukkah, and therefore, it is mutter based on the Marik. The, as I said, you, know, the, the, you can look in the handouts, the, the, there, are, there are numerous different suggestions for why, the reasons for the Menhagim of, the, of Hanukkah Gelt, they come up with all kinds of very creative solutions, most of them seem a little bit contrived, a little bit, uh, a little bit ex post facto justifications. I included an essay for a little question and answer with Roshlomo Aviner. They asked him about the custom. He keeps bringing, you know, he was a, he was a tremendous, he's a tremendous bucky. He keeps bringing all the different reasons, and each one he keeps saying uh, it's a weak reason. He says Tom Kalish. All these reasons he says are really not. Uh, they're they they're really they really he says they really he says not very compelling. People give all these clever and uh, you know, v- very creative reasons, but at the end of the day, he says none of them are really. He, he says none, none of them, none of them are really, uh, none of them are really very compelling. I call upon him. The, the, some version of the custom goes back about four, at least four centuries to the to the Eastern Europe in the in the early seventeenth century. Aniim, young people, all young people, poor young people. You know, the the custom has has has. The custom has uh, remained in one form or another until the present day. Never really discussed much in the halakhic literature, but it's an old, well-established custom. Some people have tried to argue that, have suggested that gelt in the form of cash or coins is a Jewish custom, but once you start dealing with wrapped presents and actual gifts and wrapping paper, that sounds more like Santa and Christmas again. Not sure if that's a chilek or not, but there are those who have tried to argue that the traditional version of the custom is gelt, and you should stick to money, and not uh, not presents, but okay. This is Rabbi Feinhandler's treatment of the of the custom. The first half of his tshuva is about a totally different topic. The first half of this tshuva is about a curious little chumrah that floats around the yeshiva world in, in different forms. The Machavrusa, Rabbi Yitzhak Mandel, tells me, tells me the story that Rav Shech, that, that Rav Salavechik, uh, would would, uh, would would travel back and forth and to yeshiva and his home, and once he uh, once he didn't have his uh, once once he didn't have his menorah, so he just lit. He put candles on uh, you know on, on a flat surface on aluminum foil or something, and he just lit candles straight on on top of a flat surface. So the, they they tell the story that uh, one day Rav Shechter is, is is in share. Someone comes over to him and says, "I have a message for you from Rav Salvechik." He says, "Tell Shechter that he's crazy." Apparently, what was the you know what what, what happened? Apparently, Rav Shechter had given share and had discussed this topic and had said, "You must light your Ner Hanukkah in a menorah in something that qualifies as a keli." He brought this chumrah, and apparently, he was endorsed or sympathetic to this chumrah. So then, when when someone saw Rav Salavechik lighting the lighting candles on a piece of silver foil or on something without a menorah, they said, "But Rav Shechter said that uh, you need a, that you need a." Uh, 
you need, uh, you need actual ner. Salvechik thought that was ridiculous, and he said, tell Shechter that he's crazy. Whether he, uh, so, the, so, so what's the deal with this? Where, where does this idea come from? Do you need a menorah? Don't you need a menorah? Obviously, you can argue at some level of hidr mitzvah and to do things with a certain uh, formality and regularity to light with a menorah, perhaps, but well, what's the halacha? Is there any makar that you need an actual keli or not? So the most famous discussion of this topic is a tshuva by the Avni Nezer, the, the, the Sachet Shavr, the, the great, the great Hasidish posig from a, from a century ago, famous for his Avnezer and his Ikleital, one of the great, uh, one, one of the out, one of the outstanding Gedolei Hadar halachists among the Hasidim. But uh, Avnezer himself, I, I, I realized as I was going through the tshuva in preparation for the share, Avnezer himself is quoting an earlier source, a, a rather interesting source. Avnezer is quoting a tshuva from the a sefer called Chesed Lavram. Of Rabbi, of, there, there are a number of Svarim called Chesed Lavram, but this one is Rabbi Avram Azulai, an early Sephardic Kabbalist, a, a Sephardic Kabbalist from about four centuries ago. Rabbi Avram Azulai was a uh, was a late 16th, early 17th century Kabbalist, and around the time of the Hanukkah Sabayas we, we read before. He was he, he's primarily known as a Makubal, not as a Kabbalist. He was a, he was a great you know he was a great great grandfather or something of the Chida. Rav Chaim Yosef David Azulai, but but he 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 was he was widely known and respected as as an early modern Kabbalist from uh, from around for you know, from more than four centuries ago. But uh, his 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 magnum opus is a sefer called Chesed Lavram, which is full of Kabbalah, but it also has some halachic material as well. And the passage we're discussing here comes from one of the halachic sections of his work. Where he says he says as follows: He says, "Beneiras Chanukah, there are various halachic conditions, criteria you have to meet. The, the first set of conditions concerns the, the proper vessel for lighting Ner Chanukah. He says you should know that there are fifteen levels. He lists. I'm not sure if, if, if this list is his own or if he's quoting earlier sources, but he says there are fifteen levels that can be arranged in an ordered hierarchy from from best to, from, from most preferable to least preferable. Fifteen types of materials." to use for your menorah, and here they are. Number one is gold. Number two is silver. Number three is nechoshes kolol, polished or shiny copper, which is light gold. Number four is nechoshes adam, red copper. Number five is iron. Number six is tin. Number seven is lead and glass. He goes on, some other examples. Number 13, 14, and 15 refer to the peels of various fruits and nuts. 13 is Klipas Rima and pomegranate peel. 14 is Klipas Egos Hindi, some type of nutshell. 15 is Klipas Alon, another type of uh, peel or shell of a, of a certain type of nut, I think. The last three, he says, the last three out of 15, the least preferable anyway, he says, you have to make them into a keli. Tzarech lasso some keli. Kamo kafmos nayim, like the like the semisphere of a, of a scale, meaning like meaning you cut the round shell in half and, and use half of it as a, uh, you, have to de- you have to kind of design it and designate it as a keli. A keli that's useful to measure peppers, you can use it as some kind of measuring cup, it has to have some use, it has to be some type of functional, useful thing. However, he says, the other things, you can't use other types of shells which are too flimsy, or for other reasons you can't use, like, like, like uh, onions and eggs, you can't use at all. And all these, th- all these 15 keli, he says, if they can't stand on their own without being supported by, by some means of support, he says, they're not suitable for Ner Chanukah. So Rav Azulai is telling us that the, 
that, that even the shells which are kosher, the more durable and sturdy shells, they have to be designed, they have to be made, fashioned into some type of keli, useful for measuring things. And, and the, all, the, all, these, all these 15 kalim, even the gold ones, they have to be self-supporting, they, they can't be unstable and require support of something else. Where does all this come from? Why is all this true? So the Avni Nezer, in his classic tshuva on the topic, the Avni Nezer says, he brings the chesed l'avram, that's how he starts his tshuva, and he says, Nire, daito, it appears that his opinion is, that kol she'en o keli lo nikra ner. Anything that is not a keli, for example, if, you didn't, if it's just a shell that wasn't designated as, as I'm not sure why you have to designate it for peppers, I don't know why you can't just designate it as a, as a keli for your menorah. But, uh, okay, yeah, you have to designate it as a keli, it has to have a din of a keli, the other halacha it has to be self-supporting. If, if, it, if it can't support itself, it can't be a... Uh, you can't use it for, for lighting Hanukkah, Hanukkah nair, as he says. So it appears that the position of the chesed lavram is that, you, that menorah requires a keli, not like Rav Soloveitchik. Says the... Says Avni Nezer, not so simple. He brings a comment to the morale. The morale seems to be misuprik about this, he says. He brings all kinds of other proofs from various Gemaras and Rambams. He doesn't really reach a definitive conclusion. He brings all kinds of arguments for or against for the, the requirement of a keli. Again, there's no really clear, explicit, halachic, authoritative source before him that says you do, but he says that he brings arguments for or against from different places in, in, in Shas and Poskim, and he basically considers it a, again, also not like Rav Salvechik, who thought it was ridiculous, but the Avnezer brings a, who, who reportedly thought it was ridiculous, but the Avnezer brings various arguments that you do need some kind of keli. From, from the morale, he brings the question is, what does the word ner mean? Does ner mean the oil on the wicks, or does ner include the, the vessel itself? So he says, if ner just means the wicks and the oil, the, the wicks and the oil and the, and the flame, then who cares what you put it in? But if it, but if it includes the, 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 the utensil, then the utensil might have to be a keli. Then it makes sense it would have to be a keli. So Venezia goes back and forth and doesn't really have a definitive conclusion. So getting back to Rabbi Feinheimler now, the first half of his tshuva deals with this question. Do you need a, a proper keli with a base kibble or not to, to light your ner Hanukkah? So he says, I saw the Avnezer. Avnezer is the Rosh Hashem He's the first one, aside from the relatively obscure discussion in the Chesed Lavram. Avnezer is the first, is the most prominent of the major poskim who discusses the, this question. Says Rabbi Feinheimler, I don't really understand his whole discussion. He says, he brings various proofs from the, from the context of Nair and the Avodah Space of Mikdash and the Menorah. And the, but what does that have to do with Hanukkah, he says? Just because the Menorah had to have certain rules, had to be designed a certain way, who said that the Menorah that we light for Hanukkah has to, has to meet all the criteria of the, of the Menorah of the Mikdash, he says? He says, is that really true? Ain't love herself if you take it that, that far. You have to be like, you have to be, have to be like the Menorah in every single way. People have pointed out, of course, our menorah is fundamentally different from the menorah of the Mikdash. Our menorah is an eight-branched uh, candelabra, while the, while the menorah of the Mikdash, of course, was, uh, was a, a seven-branched one. But the, in other respects, he says, who said? Chazal never told you that the... Chazal never said that the, that the menorah of, the, of Hanukkah has to have the same criteria as the menorah of the Mikdash. We find a similar discussion, this is based more on actual Talmudic sources, but we find a similar discussion in the laws of Kiddush. The, the Gemara actually makes certain comparisons between, between the wine for Kiddush and the wine for the Beis HaMikdash, the wine they used for Nisachim, for the libations uh, that they brought with Karbanos, as Karbanos. 
But uh, there's a major machlokis based on the sugya, had a paskin, the, how we come out Lamaisa. The Rambam says, Rambam has a famous chumrah, that the wine you use for Kiddush must be wine hakasher l'nesachim. And therefore the, the Rambam says you can't use yayin mevushal, you can't use yayin that has sugar in it. People who follow the Rambam, my father tries to, tries to be meticulous about this, people who follow the Rambam try very hard to find dafka wines, which are not mevushal, have no sugar added, and have, have none of the processing or, or additives that would render it not valid for Nesachim. The Shulchan Aruch, though, in Paskin's Lachel, the Shulchan Aruch Paskin's, that you don't need Yayin HaKasher for Nesachim. It's in that, the Gemara discusses this, but Lahalacha, the, the Shulchan Aruch Paskin's, you don't need that. And that, at least not with regard to these properties of Mavushal and sugar. And you're allowed to use wine that's Mavushal, which of course is the Minog. Most people are, are, are perfectly happy to use Mavushal wine for, Mavushal wine for, for Kiddush. The Ramah says, actually, that Ideally, all else being equal, you should be medaktek to use not mavushal wine to be choshish for the Rambam, unless he says the other wine is better. If the mavushal wine is better, you can use the mavushal wine because it's only a chumrah. So my father and I would always debate this. If we have uh, the, the, my father would often get a hold of Kedem's matuk rouge, which was a kind of a jug wine, which was a basic not mavushal in, in the big bottles. I think it used to be in the one and a half liter bottles was not mavushal. It was a basic, simple wine. We often we had fancier wines in the house, but they would they would uh, often be mavushal. So we would always discuss whether it's Kedai to be Choshish for the Rambam or Kedai to follow the Ramah, who says that if the other wine is better, it's more of a hinder to be to do that. But I'll call upon him. So there we find also discussion whether the wine for Kiddush has to be like the wine of the Mikdash or not. And here, my fine handler argues, there is no Makar in the Postkim for this idea that the menorah, like Rafael Vechik said, you know, there's no source in actual halacha for this idea that the, that the menorah of the Ner has to resemble in, in important ways the menorah of the mikdash is simply no makar for it. If, 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 you, you can sit here and speculate all you want about certain properties of the menorah of the mikdash and try to argue they should apply to the near Hanukkah as well, but there's no real makar for this. We simply don't find any real makar for the idea that the, that the menorah of near Hanukkah has to have the same halachas as the, as the menorah of the mikdash. I actually saw this year, as we were getting ready for Hanukkah, so we were discussing, my wife and I were discussing what kind of oil to buy. So we usually have uh, extra virgin or virgin olive oil, but you know, this year Costco changed their changed the main one they were selling, and, uh, the, and, and we were debating whether to use non-extra virgin. So my wife said she thinks there's a uh, there's an advantage to using extra virgin. So we looked it up, and sure enough, she's correct. There are a number of contemporary posts. Again, there's no real discussion of this before the 20th century, the late 20th century, but there are a number of posts who argue. Rabbi Yashiv is reputed to have held this way. Rabbi Sternbach and others who have argued that the, the differences in the grades of oil have to do largely with how they're, how they're produced, which affects, which, as far as Americans are concerned, non-Jews are concerned, it affects their nutritional profile, and what kinds of fats and acids they have in them. But the, what, what concerns us for Hanukkah is how they're produced. The, the best, you know, healthiest, highest quality, most expensive oils are produced by cold pressing, extraversion and virgin. They're produced by cold pressing. They're not filtered using chemical filtered. They're not, uh, they're not refined using heat. They, they don't undergo chemical, chemical and uh, industrial type processing. They just extract oil using a simple mechanical cold pressing techniques. That's the way they used to do it for the, mish- for the Mikdash. The, the, the Gemaras, the Mishnayas and Gemaras describe how they got oil for the Mikdash. That's how it was produced. The other oils, the, the refined and processed and, and, and uh, oils of various types, would not have been used for the mikdash. Now, in halacha, nowhere does it say anything in Hilchus Hanukkah about the oil having to resemble the oil of the mikdash to that extent. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even really say anywhere 
that in the, in, the, in the Gemara, in the very early poskim, that olive oil is preferable at all. The Rishonim, the Rokeach, and other German Rishonim said olive oil is preferred, and the early Rishonim didn't even say why. Later Rishonim, the Kolbo, and others discussed why is olive oil preferred, so they gave two reasons. One of them is because it burns the most beautifully, certainly compared to the other fuels they had, which is not necessarily the case today. We have a very, very clean burning wax and other things, but at that time at least, the olive oil was the best burning oil, best burning fuel. And B, the other reason is because it's uh, Boha Yahanes, because the nase of the Mikdash, the nase of Hanukkah was with olive oil. Later posts can bring both these reasons down. And therefore, the hinder is, many people on Mahadr today, the, the ideal to Mahadr is to, use, is to use oil, not candles, to use olive oil in particular. Again, the first reason doesn't apply really because we have other fuels that burn just as beautifully as oil. But the second reason still applies. If Boha Yahanes, the nase was with olive oil, that reason still applies. That reason is brought by the later Rishonim. That's why people try to be Mahadr to use olive oil today. But nobody, no POSIC ever dreamed up this question until, again, about a half a century ago, as far as I know, that the exact kind of olive oil you use should resemble the oil of the Mikdash being cold-pressed, extra virgin, whatever it is. That's a relatively modern Chumrah. Now, a number of Gidolei Poskim have, uh, have adopted this Chumrah. Rebbe Yashiv is said to have recommended it in other ones. But certainly, if someone has a choice, it would seem that uh, there, there is a basis for this hinder. But to argue that Mikra, again, Mikra didn't can use candles as well. So Mikra didn't, he certainly don't have to use olive oil. But here, at least, it's a hinder to use olive oil. So, so the, the Avnei seems to be assuming that the, the properties of the keli, the menorah, the properties of the physical menorah that, that, that were true in the time of the Mikdash, those properties extend to the menorah of, the, of Hanukkah as well. And Rabbi Feinheimler says, what are you talking about? Because Chazal never told us that, the, that, that, you have to, that you have to share the property with the menorah of the Mikdash as, uh, as being a keli. Even if that's a lock of the Mikdash, who said that's a lock of the menorah? Just like we find with olive oil. It, it might be a hinder, but nobody says you have to use olive oil because that was how it was done in the Mikdash. It's a, it's a, it's a svara that somebody should say it's a mile to do it because of that. But certainly not a chi of mikra din. I guess one could argue maybe the same thing should be true for kalim. Maybe just like it's a mitzvah to use uh, olive oil because boha yisahanes. Maybe it's a mitzvah to use a kalim, we should say, because boha yisahanes. I don't know. I'll call upon him by fine handler is not, uh, not too taken by this chum uh, without And again, as the story goes, neither was, neither was Rav Shechter. Again, Lamaisa, you know, the post can go back and forth on this. Uh, there, so once again, for most people, a menorah anyway is, uh, is a more convenient way of lighting, and it's, uh, it's probably safer in many cases, and certainly as a hidra mitzvah, one can argue it's part of the hidra mitzvah. Post can bring, the, having a silver menorah, we saw the chesed lavram has the 15 levels, gold and silver being the highest. So certainly one can argue it's a hidra, and for practical reasons and safety reasons, it's probably a good idea to use, uh, to use a menorah. But Meikra Din, if someone for some reason uh, is stuck without a menorah, and it's you know it's it's, not, it's it's no menorah or nothing, he sticks to candles in the wall or on the or on top of the or on the table and lights, assuming he can do it safely. So again, it it, it seems to be machlokes a poskim. Some poskim say that there is simply no basis for a requirement of keli, and you can feel perfectly happy lighting the menorah without a uh, lighting your ner without a keli. While other poskim suggest that you really should have a keli. Like the because that's the definition of ner and that's how it's done in the base of mikdash and therefore you really should have a keli to light your ner chanukah.